0: The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Okie dokie, good morning. I want to say welcome to Summit Church. Whether this is your first time here, you've been here for years, you're welcome here. Hope you feel welcome. Hope you uh, are ready to hear something from the Lord today. Um, just kind of a cool. Uh, milestone, I guess, we are back in the Gospel of John. And so here's what that means. As a church, we have literally now been walking verse by verse through the Gospel of John for two years. Now we've taken some breaks. For instance, we just took a seven-week break, did some Christmas stuff, had some, some standalone messages. So, like, we've taken breaks, but it's been a while. And today, okay, we're back in. And it is my intent, although I will not promise you this, it is my intent to finish the Gospel of John in the next 8 to 17 weeks, okay? So hey, that is my full-on intent. No more breaks. Like, we're just going gonna to go. It is interesting, though, today where we pick back up. Okay, this is not ideal. I'm just going to tell you right now. It's not an ideal place. Because when we paused six, seven weeks ago, the last verses we read were the death of Jesus, Literally, the last verse we read was that it was written that he'd be pierced, and they would look upon him. So what, where we left off is that the soldiers that come around, Jesus is already dead on the cross, they need to get all three men who were crucified that day, they need to get them down in the next three to four hours, because it's going to be the Sabbath, would have been a bad deal in Jerusalem to have them up there. So they go around, they find that Jesus is already dead, just for good measure, they poke him in the side with a spear, and that's where we stopped. Then we celebrate Christmas, and we're coming back today. We have about seven verses in chapter 19 that we need to finish. Now, next Sunday, we start chapter 20. And spoiler alert, chapter 20 is the resurrection. Jesus doesn't stay dead. So next Sunday, we're going to have like a mini Easter in January. And then we'll do Easter again in April. But like we're, it's, next Sunday is what you're supposed to preach on Easter. So I, I was really just being candid really thinking about skipping these seven verses. No one would probably know. The one person who did catch it would send me an email, and I'd take him to lunch and be fine. Like, like no one. Like, I really thought, let's jump back in, the resurrection. Like, I, I mean, I really thought long and hard about skipping these seven verses. And the only reason is, these seven verses, they describe the burial of Jesus. The burial, how he was buried. Their holy scripture they're, they're, they're in there. We should study them. But I looked at them and was like, I don't know what you, how you make a sermon out of this. How do you make a sermon out of six, seven verses to talk about him getting buried? Then I came up with this idea. And it's always dangerous as a preacher when you have an idea about a talk and then you try to go make the Bible say what you want it to say. That's always dangerous. So I had this great idea. And I was going to talk about what happened between Friday and Sunday. You know, the passage about the burial, buried burial on Friday, what happened between Friday and Sunday. I had this idea. And so then I studied this idea, and I found out that for 20 years, what I believed probably isn't true. <laughs> so then I was like, darn it! But then, well, what's really cool is, I'm just going to tell you what we're going to do. 6, 7 verses about the burial of Jesus. We're going to walk through those. Then we're going to go on this crazy journey together, okay? And it's crazy. I'm going to tell you right now, like, bring your crazy hat. Like, it's crazy. We're going go on a crazy journey together, and then we're going to end with a really simple truth that everyone in here needs to know. So that's the plan. Burial, crazy, simple truth, all right? So that's where we're heading. We're in John chapter 19, verse 38 where we're going to start. We're going to finish 19 today, but first, we're going to pray for our crazy journey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your word. Lord, every bit of it has meaning and purpose, and it's able to sharpen us and transform us. We thank you for that. We ask that you would use your word now to do just that, to transform us, to sharpen us, to come in and meet us where we're at, to move mightily through us, come and speak now through your Holy Spirit, so that we might leave here looking more like you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. John 19. Let's look at verse 38, later, um, Jesus died at roughly 3 p.m. on Friday, roughly, 3 p.m., so later is not much later, because Jesus needs to be buried before sundown, okay, this time of year, sunset would have been 6, o'clock. They've got roughly three to four hours to get Jesus buried. And there's a lot of stuff you've got to do in first century Palestine to bury someone. So when that says later, I don't think it's much later. I think it's as soon as they saw that Jesus was dead, these things started happening. But later, Joseph of Arimathea, we'll learn about him in a moment, asked Pilate. Okay, If you remember from a few weeks ago, Pilate is the Roman governor in the area. And he is the man. The only person above Pilate is Caesar himself. So Joseph of Arimathea goes straight to the man. Straight to the one who could grant this request. And he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. Would you mind if if I took that? I I know he's kind of been your prisoner. Can Can I just go bury him? Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but... He was disciple secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with the permission of Pilate, he came and he took the body away. Now, you've got to be a guy with some swag to get to go straight to Pilate without an appointment and get to take the body of this very disputed prisoner down. You've got to have some pull. Well, Joseph does for two reasons. One, he is part of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the 72-member body that rules Jerusalem. He's part of that. And also, he's very wealthy. So it doesn't say that he greased the pockets of Pilate. Maybe Pilate didn't want nothing to do with Jesus. But he's very powerful, and he's very affluent. And he leveraged both of those things, I believe, to be able to take custody of the body. We learn about a little bit more of Joseph in Luke chapter 23, verses 50 and 51. There was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, that is the Sanhedrin, that 72-person ruling council, a good and an upright man who had not consented to their decisions or their actions. So Joseph Arimathea was in the trial the night where the Sanhedrin was like, we got to kill this guy, and he goes, why? I do, not, I do not approve of this. I do not approve of killing him. He's an innocent man. Now, he was secretly a follower of Jesus. That's why he stood up against it. But he can't tell anyone that, the Jewish leaders, he was afraid of them. Why? Because he is one of them. He's one of them. He's kind of like a secret agent. He's in there battling for Jesus, but he can't let anyone know truly because if they found out, they would kick him out. Now, he's not alone. Verse 39. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Okay, Nicodemus, that should ring a bell. This is the third time in the Gospel of John that we've heard the name Nicodemus. That was the man who had earlier visited John. Okay, that account is in John chapter 3. So if you remember back to the late 80s when we were in John chapter 3, okay, think back hairdos. So we we heard about that in John chapter 3, that was the man who came to Jesus at night and asked him about being born again, and they had that whole conversation, so that's Nicodemus, and I think from that point forward, Nicodemus was a follower of Jesus, but once again, he was a secret follower, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of them, that's a lot, Nicodemus was mentioned in John chapter 3. He was also mentioned in John chapter 7. John chapter 7 is about halfway through Jesus' three-year ministry. And in John chapter 7, the Sanhedrin's trying to kill Jesus again. John chapter 7, verses 15 and 51. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their number, so he's a follower, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? So Sanhedrin is wanting to kill Jesus. He's going, shouldn't we at least bring him in and ask him some questions? But he's secretly a follower as well. I think what's interesting, so we have two men here who are both prominent, who are both powerful. They're both part of the ruling body, the Sanhedrin, and they're both followers of Jesus. And they both now have invested an obscene amount of money into the quick burial of Jesus. Jesus. Nicodemus, 75 pounds of myrrh and other spices, very expensive. Joseph, now John doesn't tell us this, but Matthew does, Joseph gave up his own tomb. That's how they had somewhere to bury Jesus so quickly. Joseph had just had a tomb made for himself in a garden right near Golgotha. And that tomb was not cheap. And yet he gives it freely to be able to bury Jesus. I don't think... Either man was optimistic of a resurrection. I think they were trying to honor their fallen friend. I think that's what they were trying to do. The myrrh that Nicodemus brought, you get myrrh from the resin of trees in Arabia. It's very aromatic. It's used for perfume, or at least was. But it was used specifically in burials. Do you remember when we talked about the three wise men, the magi that came, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? And we said that they were perfect gifts because of the birth, the king, and then, and then the burial. Well, myrrh was used for it. The reason being, you could mix it with other aloes and make kind of a soupy paste, but its aroma was very strong, very pungent. You dipped strips of linen in this paste, and then you laid them over the body, or really literally wrapped the body in it. As that paste dried, it made a very light mummification process. It wouldn't last centuries. It wouldn't even last years, but it wrapped the body well enough to hold in the stink. And then any stink that may have snuck out was covered by the perfume of the myrrh. Very expensive stuff. And I think to honor Jesus, he brings roughly 75 pounds of it. Verses 40 through 42. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of the linen as we talked. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, that's Golgotha, there was a garden nearby, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, that's where they laid Jesus. First century Palestine, a tomb would be cut into a rock, bore out of a rock, be about nine feet by nine feet. There'd be between two and six things cut into the rock to be able to lay bodies on. After you prepared them, you would lay them in the tomb. You'd lay with them an ossuary, a box with mementos that meant something about the deceased. And then you would seal the tomb for one year. One year after the traditional Jewish burial time had passed, the time of mourning, you would go and you would open the tomb. You would find the bones of the body and you would take them and you would remove the items from the ossuary and you would put the bones in them. And then the ossuary would be placed in a small hole carved out of the side of the wall. And that's how families could bury generations of loved ones in the same tomb. Because they ended up only being in small boxes pushed into the wall. They only needed a year for each body it's... Makes sense. I believe that Joseph was firmly just going to add Jesus into his family's tomb. Makes sense. It's beautiful. Mark 15 verse 46 finishes the burial process. I don't know why Jesus or John left this out, but it's not really relevant. Mark 15 46 says, then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. A stone's important to me, so I just wanted to make sure you heard that the the tomb is unsealed Friday night. Jesus is in there alone. No one else ever been place in there. The tomb is sealed. And I believe Nicodemus and Joseph, they went home to mourn. I don't think there was a lot of joy that Friday night. I don't think as they prepared for the Passover Sabbath, I don't think there was a lot of rejoicing. I think there was a lot of crying. I think there was a lot of sadness. So that's the end of John chapter 19, okay? We'll start chapter 20 next week. That's the resurrection. Kind of know where to go with that. So back to that question: What in the world did Jesus do from Friday to Sunday? He's placed in a tomb; his body, at least, is dead. What did he do until he pops up in the garden Sunday morning and scares Mary? What 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 is he going to do for those hours of time? Well, there's this pretty prolific theory that Jesus went on a little evangelistic crusade. He did a little preaching in hell. Took himself down to hell, preached to the prisoners there. There's there's a pretty prominent theory about this. And in fact, you can read the passage that that's taken from. It's in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Okay, so there's some Bible support to this. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous Jesus for the unrighteous humans, to bring humans to God. That is the gospel in its most simple, beautiful form. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. After being made alive. Now, I'm not a fan of getting into debates about translations. I just read that to you from the NIV. That first phrase, after being made alive, I believe is a horrible translation. Okay, I believe it's a horrible translation. I think the New King James Version gets it right. Now, there's some textual variants here. I mean, some of the documents from centuries ago say it different ways. So I think the New King James gets it better. So the way you would read it with the New King James, I have it on the screen there for you. It would be like this. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit by whom also he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Okay, so I... I just think the NIV kind of missed it here. I think they're trying to get us to believe that Jesus dipped into somewhere. It doesn't even say where in the text, but went somewhere and preached to imprisoned spirits. I think the NIV is going there. The New King James gives it a little more latitude there, and I think that's correct. He went to preach or proclaim to imprison spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So what this is saying, what Peter is saying is that the spirit of Jesus preached to those who mocked Noah during the amount of time it took him to build the ark. If you go back and read Genesis chapter 6, you can see that it took him a while to build the ark. And during that period of time, everyone's just up going, it's not going to rain, bro. It's never rained. You're building a boat and you don't need to. And they mocked him. And it's it's saying that Jesus went and preached. And you could probably extrapolate that you're talking about a lot of the world at that point. So Jesus went and did that. Now you can see in 1 Peter that it doesn't say anything about where Jesus went. It just says that he preached. He proclaimed to imprisoned spirits. The reason that many people believe that Jesus went to hell or Hades to preach is because of the Apostles' Creed. We got any Methodists, Episcopalians, got any Apostle creeders in here? You know what I'm talking about? Who had to memorize the Apostles' Creed? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Proud. Proud. There were, there were a few. Apostles' Creed? About, about 11 of you. Good Apostles. Good Apostles right there. Good good, solid number. Here's what the Apostles' Creed states. It is a creed, it's a statement of faith, that is to summarize the most essential and foundational beliefs of Christianity. That's the whole idea of the Apostles' Creed. Here's how it goes. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, he died, and he was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's the Apostles' Creed, at least the traditional version. Some of you are going, I don't remember saying descended into hell. We didn't say it that way. That's because the modern version leaves it out. The modern version of the Apostles' Creed leaves it out. I don't know which one, your church, if you're traditional or contemporary, you know, I don't know. The idea that Jesus went to hell and preached, the traction that it has comes more from the Apostles' Creed than it does from 1 Peter 3. But here's the deal, I've been studying the Bible, seriously, for about 20 years, and I don't know when, somewhere in the first five years, that someone told me that Jesus did that, that he went to hell and preached, and I have been sitting on that thought, wanting to preach this sermon for 10 years. I remember one time, planning for Easter, someone had the idea of doing this, like talking about Jesus preaching to people who are already condemned, like... Someone threw that idea and we immediately said that's stupid. But like, I remember wanting to preach this message because I believe that that's what Jesus did. So now I have this opportunity to preach this message. And everyone's going to be like, I didn't know he did that. That's amazing. So then you start to study it. I've studied it for a couple weeks now. That passage, 1 Peter 3. And I've come to the conclusion that I don't think Jesus did that. Just Personally. There are very, very, very smart people, way, way, way smarter than me, that absolutely believe Jesus went to hell, preached to imprisoned spirits there. Absolutely. And here's the truth. It's a way cooler version of the story. I mean, that, it does, that, it's just like an epic hero story drama. Jesus dies for all mankind, and then he goes and he preaches to those who have perished before, and then he comes back to save the living and the dead. Like, it, it's the trailer to an amazing movie. I, I believe, believe that that very likely could have happened. I just can't prove it biblically. And the more I look at that passage, even more so I'm convinced that I don't think that's what it says. So if you believe Jesus did that from Friday to Sunday, awesome. I, 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 he may very well have. I just did the study, and now I kind of don't think he did. So, what did he do? Did he just take a nap? I mean, like, like he was dead, so I don't. I'm not swoon theory in you here. Like, but did he just rest? Like, did he just sit there and wait for Sunday, and then at some point, the Spirit of the Living God raised him from the dead? I don't think so. I I don't think that's what he did. Like he may have gone and preached, may have happened, um, but I don't think he just chilled for three days. Okay? At least not on earth. And the reason I think that is is twofold. Do you remember what Jesus said to the robber on his left when he's hanging on the cross? He said, today, I think that's literal, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's going to happen today. So I I think that's a marker in time. And then the last words of Jesus, I think, are also a little clue, just a little clue. Last words of Jesus, Luke 23, verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46, the last words of Jesus on this earth. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands. Daddy, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I commit my spirit to you. When he had said this, he breathed his last. At sundown on Friday, Jesus' body was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. His spirit may have gone to Hades or hell or somewhere and preached, but based on this passage, I think instead what happened is his spirit went to heaven to be with the Father for three days. But specifically, and this is... I'm speculating here, like just I, I, it doesn't say this either. Okay, so just I'm speculating, but track with me. Track with me for this picture. Jesus has bore the sins of all mankind. He has died a sinner's death for you and for me. He is laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. His spirit ascends into heaven temporarily, and the Father and the Son have this reunion. Everyone on earth is weeping and mourning, and they are high-fiving at the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They are hugging and rejoicing and celebrating, and then they go, there is now a Sabbath day where nothing's going to happen. Sunday's coming, but there's a Saturday, and you want to know the picture that I have. And I mean, this is so just a picture, but the picture I have is a father and a son sitting enthroned in glory and resting together. Resting in the completed work of Jesus. Knowing that Sunday's coming, knowing that the Spirit's going to come back and raise Jesus' physical body from the dead. He's going to be there another 40 days, and he's going to sin, And and ultimately, that's where he is. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So whether he went for those three days and got to Sabbath with God, or whether it was at the ascension, I don't know. But at some point, that did occur. That high five, you the man! No, you the man! Like, I can't believe you, we did it! We've saved all the world! At some point, that happened. And how beautiful would it be if it happened Friday night? And then on Saturday, they just rested. While the rest of the world mourned, they rested in the completed work of Jesus. The other reason why I think this might work, what was the other great feat of God? I mean, there's been billions, but think of creation. Six days they work, on the seventh they rest. They rest getting to look at all they had done and accomplished. They speak it all in existence, and then they rest. The Sabbath is the remembrance of the seventh day taken from God as a reminder of a holy day set apart to rest, to remember him, to worship him. What if they just did it? What if after the work of Jesus, what he'd accomplished on the cross, they said, now we get one day to rest because Sunday's coming and we're back to work. That could be completely wrong that literally could be the furthest thing from the truth. I don't know. But are you ready for the simple truth I do know? Here's the simple truth that I do know. You and I we can rest in the completed work of Jesus. We can we get that moment. We can do that. We can rest knowing that Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We don't have to toil or strain or work our way to God because the righteous became the unrighteous so that we might be brought to God. The work of Christ is sufficient for you. It is sufficient for all of your needs. Everything that you struggle and toil with, all of your doubt, all of your worry, all of your fear, all of your hopelessness, all of your lack of joy, they are sustained not in your own strivings, workings, doings, but instead in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And some of you today just need to rest in the truth of the completed work of Christ. You just need to Sabbath from all of your own doings. You're tired. You're exhausted. You're struggling to find how you and God are to relate. And I will say to you with great certainty, then child, would you just rest in the completed work of Jesus? Just rest. That is available to all. The spirit that I believe ascended to heaven is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father. It is Jesus. It is available to you. Romans eight eleven. This is the one you probably ought to kind of just take to the bank. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you church you can rest in the completed work of Jesus you can rest you can trust you can sit you can bask you pick the adjective or adverb what it's an action i don't know someone email me you pick, it's it's probably a verb it's a verb don't email me, I figured it out. It's a verb. You pick what action, what it is you want to do. But just for me, on Saturday, when the whole world lost their minds, when they all thought there was no hope, I know at least for God the Father, he rejoiced in what his son had accomplished. And he rested. There was nothing to do that day because Sunday was coming. I think a lot of you need a Saturday. You need it. Spiritually, you need a Saturday. And so I offer it to you today. A chance to just rest in the completed work of Jesus. So as the band comes back up here, the response is obviously very simple. We have communion in each corner in the back of the room. That is a reminder of the work of Jesus. His body and blood broken and shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the redemption of all mankind. This is one of them days where you probably might want to do that because that is reminding you of the work of Jesus that has been completed. Maybe a great day to go take communion. Our prayer team pastors will be up here so that you can come and that you can pray. But also, here's here's the thing. I I love our pastor. I love our prayer team. But sometimes I think there's, a, there's just like a personal roadblock. You're going, I don't know who that person, I don't really know what to pray for. So here's the other thing. You're not snubbing anyone. If you just want to walk up here and pray, like just sit in the presence of God and rest and kind of just cast your burdens on him and, and Sabbath, like you can do that. You can... Do that where you're at. But today, there's an offer of rest, an offer of rest in the completed work of Jesus. And I think a lot of us, no matter where you are with God, I think a lot of us need that. So it's yours. It's yours to embrace in faith today. And I pray you do it. I pray you do it no matter where you're at. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that we would rest in you and in your completed work. We would know that you have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You are so good. Your son is so good. I thank you for the life that he gave, the hope that we have in him. And may we, Jesus, rest in you and your completed work. We love you and we thank you. That's your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's respond to him.